I'm Dale Denwald. And I'm Nuria Martinez-Keel. You're listening to The Source. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the Oklahomans' most impactful stories with the reporters who wrote them. The vote tallies are in for Oklahoma's primary elections. Voters in Oklahoma County approved a $260 million bond package to build a new jail. Multiple statewide Republican races are headed to runoffs. This race isn't over. I need us all to stay engaged. Reporters Janae Williams and Carmen Foreman are here with us this week. Let's start with the county jail. That $260 million bond issue passed with 59% of the vote in Oklahoma County. We know it's going to fund the construction of a new county jail with room for more inmates and space for resource centers. We don't know where the new jail will be or how long it could take to build it. Janae, you covered this, so how soon do we find those things out? So that really all depends on how long it takes to actually start issuing those bonds and and actually selling those bonds. They won't be able to even begin that process until after the first of the year, according to my conversations with the county commissioners. So the earliest that we're going to see them start to really narrow in and start looking at sites for the new jail will be after January 1st. Um, And then from that point on, they can start to look at what it's going to take to narrow down the options, select a site, and then start to see how long it's actually going to take to build this new jail. Wait, so the bond package just passed. This is the month of June. It's not going to be another six months before they really start to look at where this could be? So they've already started looking at sites. They can't buy anything, obviously, until they issue the bonds. So um, they don't have the, the money available. So the funding won't be available until those bonds can actually be issued. And one of the things that Commissioner Brian Mon actually mentioned to me is that we're kind of in this weird potential lame duck period as well for two of the three commissioners. We know that Commissioner Kevin Calvey is not going to be there after the first of the year. He's running for district attorney, so there's going to be a new district three commissioner. And then if Commissioner Carrie Bloomer were to lose her runoff, she would also become a lame duck commissioner. And there are very strict rules that they're going to have to flesh out as to what those two commissioners will be allowed to do in that period from August until the end of the year when those new commissioners come in and take over. I know it's it's a ways away before they can actually spend this money, but they do have projections of how much revenue they could receive from this bond package. So are they eyeing any particular locations right now? I think a lot of people are wondering just where do you put a brand new jail? So the things that they've discussed is that they are probably going to have to do some form of land acquisition, and they are looking at sites that are within 10 minutes of downtown. So they want it to still be within a reasonable amount of time from the current court houses, but they also are knowing that they're going to need a pretty sizable piece of land because they don't want to build up again. That's been one of the main complaints and issues that they've reported with the current jail is that with it being 13 stories tall, it just creates a lot of problems. So they're planning to build out instead of up. So they are going to have to find a pretty sizable piece of land. And they do have, like I said, several sites that they've been looking at, um, but nothing that they've done anything actionable on at this time. So the new jail is expected to cost $300 million. And this bond package is $40 million million dollars short of that. So 
where would the remainder of the money come from? There's been a lot of discussion about this part of it. One of the things that a lot of people are concerned about is are they going to use ARPA money for this? And actually, the Treasury Department has been pretty clear that you cannot use ARPA money to build detention facilities. So what they are instead trying to do is find things within the county budget that they can use ARPA money for, and then that way they can restructure the county budget to move county funds toward helping to pay for the jail. So they're trying to kind of look at what their overall budget is, what projects they might have outstanding that are applicable to ARPA funds, and they can say, okay, well, we've got, you know, this XYZ amount of money in ARPA funds that we can apply to these other county projects. So now we can move these county dollars over to help cover those costs. And for our listeners, uh, what is what is ARPA? ARPA is the American Rescue Plan Act. Those are those coronavirus relief funds that uh, President Biden approved. The county stands to receive over $150 million in ARPA funds. Jenny, there are some people who are opposed to solving the problems with the old jail by building a new one, but were there any other viable alternatives out there? The short answer to that is no by most people's vision of what's going on with the county jail. A lot of people brought up the idea of, well, instead of spending money on a new jail, let's do mental health facilities, let's do transitional housing, things like that. And some of the groups that I've spoken to that were against the jail bond said they're still going to push for the county to invest in some of those things. But overall, the jail has been in existence for over 30 years at this point, And since day one, it has had problems. The sheriff that was in charge when the jail opened had issues from the time that it opened. And it has just kind of been a problem that has exacerbated over time. And so at this point, it kind of seemed like most people in county leadership and even in city leadership and elsewise, because the county jail doesn't just serve Oklahoma County, it serves most of the municipalities in Oklahoma County. They all kind of seemed to come to a consensus where they said, now's the time, we don't really have much other choice. And Commissioner Mon even said there is no plan B at this point. We don't have other options because it's taken so long just to get to this point. Gotcha. Well, Janae, thank you so much for taking us through what was one of the key things that we saw on the ballot here, at least in Oklahoma County. Um, Let's switch over to Carmen. Some key statewide positions had primary elections Tuesday. Governor Kevin Stitt cruised to a primary victory. Friends, Let's keep Oklahoma red. And so did Joy Hoffmeister on the Democratic side. I'm so proud to be the Democratic nominee for governor of Oklahoma. Those two are going to face off in the November 8th general election. But some of the governor's choices for other high-ranking state positions also had primary elections too. So how did things go for Stitt and his preferred candidates? It's a great question. I think it's one that people have been looking at ahead of the primary election because, you know, Governor Stitt has appointed a couple of people to his administration and then they were running for statewide positions. He also endorsed down ballot candidates either for statewide offices or for legislative races. And the big picture is that Governor Stitt endorsed candidates ended up doing pretty dang well. Obviously, the one exception to that rule is Attorney General John O'Connor, who lost to his Republican challenger, Gentner Drummond. I did not see this coming. Even 20 minutes ago, I thought we were going to crest this. It's an incredibly close race. I congratulate my opponent. But the interesting thing, I think, is that the polls were showing that O'Connor was down by like double digits for a while. And so everybody expected him to lose by a lot. And then throughout election night, we just saw the races tightening, tightening, tightening until I think Gentner Drummond only won by about 6,000, 7,000 votes, which is like nothing in a statewide race. I guess I should say, I think part of that is because of Governor Stitt. I think that Governor Stitt's endorsement helped 
get John O'Connor that close to winning. And so if you look at other races like the state superintendent race um, where Governor Stitt was endorsing Ryan Walters, Walters came in uh, first, basically, and he's headed to a runoff against um, Superintendent April Grace. But he was leading throughout the night. He got about 41% of the vote. And if you think about it, state superintendent is not a race where there's like a huge name ID for any of the candidates. And so being able to be associated with somebody like the governor who does have that ID really helps. And I think the same kind of goes for um, Sean Roberts, the, the unlikely patriot who is now advancing to a runoff election for labor commissioner. He also got Governor Stitt's endorsement, and I think it might have helped him a lot. Um, and then last on this topic, I'll also say that Governor Stitt endorsed eight legislators of candidates and every single one of them won on Tuesday. So that's that's a pretty that's a 100% success rating there. That's pretty good. Yeah, and I think the reason we're asking about this Carmen is because polling coming into the primary elections showed um, John O'Connor way behind uh, Gettner Drummond. Ryan Walters looked like he was going to be in a dead heat with John Cox and April Gray. So, you know, it seemed kind of chancy if he was even going to make a runoff. And then election night happens. And I think I think back to one thing that Ryan Walters said in his kind of not a victory speech because he, he didn't win the primary per se, but kind of a celebratory uh, remark where he said, I think Governor Stitt's top 10 agenda is strong. Tonight we heard loud and clear, Governor Kevin Stitt's top 10 agenda is strong in the state of Oklahoma. Was it misguided for us to assume that the governor would have all of this strong support, that there was no chance he was going to lose his primary, and yet his supported candidates were at risk? Was that maybe a misguided prediction by some people. I definitely think so. um, Because if you think that, I mean, the last poll I saw in the governor's race had, I think, Governor Stitt at 61%, if I remember correctly. So obviously, his opponents weren't well known, didn't have a ton of money. So they weren't really good competitors by any means. But if you can think about the fact that the governor is going to win 61% of primary voters, but then you're doubting that his Uh, you know, hand-picked or hand-supported candidates are going to do much, much worse than that. It doesn't really make sense. And I'll tell you, I think the problem is, is that, and for a lot of reporters too, I think we look at social media so much, especially Twitter, especially Facebook, and we see Um, I know I do, at least. I see people complaining about the governor. I see people, um, you know, throwing out allegations that he's corrupt, his administration's corrupt. But most GOP primary voters, most Republicans are not on Twitter. Very few Oklahomans in general are on Twitter. And most people see the the governor and I think that they think he's doing a good job. And I think there's this connection, too, that Stitt has made that he could continue the work that he's doing if he has candidates in other statewide positions that are aligned in his vision for state government. Everything wasn't so rosy on Tuesday. It seems like there were a lot more runoffs than usual 
because no one received more than 50 percent of the vote in a lot of these uh, races. Now, you have to have at least three candidates to uh, be eligible for a runoff. Now, I noticed this especially among the statewide offices and federal, a uh, couple of federal uh, races, and I'm sure there were several on the legislative side. Is this one of those weird election occurrences that happen sometimes, or is there something else going on here that's led to Oklahoma having so many primary runoffs? So in some cases, it's just the sheer amount of candidates that are in the race. So if you look at the Congressional District 2 race, more than a dozen candidates running in one race. In that situation, there's like almost no chance that one person is going to claim 50% outright unless you have somebody with a really strong name ID that's running. Like, let's say, okay, this is a hypothetical because Governor Stitt doesn't live in Congressional District 2, but if he dropped out of the governor's race and was like, I'm going to run for Congress, okay, he's somebody who might be able to get 50% of the vote. But then we look, too, at the U.S. Senate race for retiring Senator Jim Inhofe's seat, and Mark Wayne Mullen has that really strong sort of name ID from being a congressman, and he was the front runner going into the runoff, but because there were so many candidates in the race, he's still going to a runoff with T.W. Shannon. Then the other thing I would say is sometimes it's not always about the number of candidates, it's about the candidates themselves. And so I would point to the labor commissioner's race. So we have um, Leslie Osborne is our current labor commissioner, and she got primaried by a couple different people, including Sean Roberts, who is a Uh, termed out state lawmaker, and he is pretty well known in conservative circles, and he likes to tout himself as this huge, conservative, extremely Republican guy. And Leslie Osborne is not really the strongest conservative. Uh, She's Dale, maybe you could help me out here, but I feel like she's become more moderate in recent years. Well, she's she's certainly upset a lot of people when um, she was in the legislature. I think she was budget chair at the time, and then also, uh, you know, moving on uh, to to a statewide role. Uh, She frequently clashed with Republican leadership on tax issues, uh, specifically the the oil and gas tax. So, you know, there's probably uh, very little love lost between Leslie Osborne and what is now the established uh, Republican Party. Exactly. And so... In these races where it's like one candidate trying to out-Republican the other, that can also lead to a runoff election. And then you'll also see like, you know, the state treasurer's race um, where David Hooten, surprisingly, I guess, did not uh, make it to the runoff. But the other two candidates, um, they're going to run off Clark Jolly and Representative Todd Russ. And I think that's partly because they may not have enough name ID across the state. And so, and they've both been getting out and campaigning a lot. So they were, you know, closely tied in um, their support. So Carmen, how do you think the runoff elections, especially given how many of them there are, how do you think that will influence Governor Stitt's desire for a special session on tax cuts, if it influences it at all? I don't know that it will all that much. I mean, I know that legislative leaders are very cognizant of trying to get their members reelected. And so things like a special session really kind of, they make it hard for their members to be out knocking doors, out campaigning in their districts, out talking to voters, because, you know, you're in Oklahoma City at the Capitol for, at minimum, five days, because it would take five days at least to pass a tax cut package. So um, 
I don't think that's going to make Governor Stitt stop calling for a special uh, session on tax cuts. I don't think that's going to make him tone down his rhetoric at all about the fact that he thinks we need an inflation relief package right now. And if anything, he doesn't have a primary runoff. The governor doesn't because both him and Superintendent Joy Hoffmeister will meet in the general election. Governor Stitt's got free time on his hands, right? I mean, I don't... I know that he's out campaigning, too, and and getting ready for the general. But, um, you know, he told a TV reporter the other day, he's like, well, I've still got a day job. And right now his day job is advocating for tax cuts, which I think the political calculus also factors in there because I think he thinks passing tax cuts will also help him on the ballot in November. So the last time we had you on this podcast, it was just a couple of weeks ago to talk about this exact thing, a special session where lawmakers were not agreeing on how to approach a tax cut package. Um, Forgive me for maybe being out of date on this, but can you bring us up to speed on how that week-long special session resolved, if it resolved at all. Lawmakers kind of left it in limbo. Um, The Oklahoma House, House Republicans passed a package of tax cut bills um, that are all variations of either reducing or eliminating the state's uh, grocery sales tax or um, reducing personal income tax rates by uh, 0.25%. So they sent all those to the state Senate, and the state Senate uh, leadership Republicans over there were basically like, yeah, we're not going to do this, at least not right now, Um, because they say that they're for tax cuts, but they want to study just sort of like the long term effects of the tax cuts. And because, you know, everything's so in flux with the economy right now, they're not sure that cutting taxes is the best idea at the moment. So they're studying it. But the Senate did not adjourn from the special session. So they could go back. They could take up those bills, although they have said that um, because the House adjourned, that, the, that if they took up those bills, they could not go back to the House. It's complicated procedural stuff. But in order to go to the governor's desk, the bills would have to make a little pit stop in the House before they get there. And the Senate leaders have basically said, which House leaders have said is not true, that procedural timeline cannot happen because the house adjourned. I feel like I'm on an episode of Schoolhouse Rock with the bill on Capitol Hill right now. Carmen, thanks so much for being here. Janae, you as well. Um, And to our listeners, thank you for joining us this week. This podcast is possible because of the Oklahoman subscribers. We encourage you to subscribe if you can. You can read these stories and more every day in the Oklahoman and at oklahoman.com. Check back next Friday for a new episode.